Welcome, Carly Pittman. It's really nice to meet you and have you here on this podcast, the Un- Unpacking Depression podcast project that I'm working on. Um, so I don't know how much you kind of learned from the poster I put out, and um, I'm curious what kind of draw you um, drew you in. But um, I'm kind of seeking to learn more about depression as a social worker, and um, it's not really, you know, it's a different paradigm that whole. De- um, disorder paradigm, of course. So um, I, I imagine we share a similar paradigm in that we've studied with Dr. Gordon Newfeld. So it'll be really nice to to dive in with you and take take that languaging that's from the disorder model and kind of translate it into making sense of it. And um, I have all kinds of thoughts I've gathered and questions, and I'd love to kind of dig in with you. So um, welcome. And if you want to introduce yourself, I'll pass it over to you. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Eugenia. I was really touched by this podcast series that you're doing, and because um, it's such a rich topic, and like you just shared, there are many different lenses that you can take with which to see depression, and some of those lenses I find to be um, pathologizing or um, really disempowering, and some of the lenses are incredibly helpful. And um, the Newfeld lens is certainly one that uh, has been so helpful to me and just made a lot of intuitive sense. And um, before we hopped on this, we were talking a little bit about shamanism and some other things that we're interested in. Interestingly, I found the shamanic um, understanding of depression. Um, there's probably more than one, just the ones that I've, that have been shared with me, very interesting as well. So you know, this has been a topic that um, really, really interests me. I live in Austin, Texas, and um, I'm a mother of four, and I'm a, a writer and a, a wonder and explorer and a craftswoman. And um, for me, really understanding the terrain of the human heart is is one of the one of my passions. And I'm also someone who has um, had a wrestling match with depression for much of my life and some things that many people dear to me have also, you know, wrestled with. And um, so through their, their courage and their stories and their examples um, that has been, uh, it has deepened something in me and um, journeying with a loved one through depression has transformed me. And um, the best way I can describe it for me is there's a way it just feels like an extraordinary privilege, um, which I don't think I would have said <laughs> even 10 years ago. Um, but I think that's one of the things we can talk about that depression has the power to do. There's a way it can really deepen something in us. And um, so, yeah, so this is a topic that, I feel I've personally been touched by and um, I've cared for depression for most of my adult life. Um, It's dear watching dear ones, Um, but also something just in our collective. I feel um, I I think it's, I think one of the things that really struck me about what you're doing and the idea of really understanding depression is how can we start to create a real life affirming dialogue around it? Because so many people are impacted by depression, whether it's personally or loved ones I think there's a way that depression is asking for 
a more merciful and more compassionate and more life-affirming way of understanding it. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I know so I'm with a kindred say, spirit now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I think kindred spirits, <laughs> which is why when you, when you talked about the podcast, I was like, yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, everything to me was like, it was a very quick yes. So I really just want to offer my gratitude because it sounds like you were, um, you were, you were helping, you, you were midwifing that, mm. that very thing we just spoke of. And um, I imagine that will continue in your work as a social worker, but just as a human being. So thank you for bringing um, that, that light and warmth to this place that can feel so outcast, you know, mm-hmm. orphan that we kind of bar at the gates, um, whether it's in ourselves or in others. So, Absolutely. Uh, are you familiar with um, Carla McLaren's work at all? Yeah, I am. I have read. Um, so it's been, gosh, a couple of years, but um, I found her work really fascinating and her understanding of emotion. Yeah. But did something I say prompt you to, I'd love to hear more with. Well, I just, yeah, I mean, Dr. Newfeld obviously comes from that sort of line of thinking as well, that the, the brain is not broken. It's not doing something wrong. It, there isn't a pathology it's doing, but it's designed to do in the context of the situation that's happening. And especially with attachment and, and um, the circumstances and conditions of that person's um, situation and all of that. But um, I, I just, your languaging just kind of reminded me a bit more of Carla in terms of how she, it's the same sort of underlying message of like, let it all in and everything has a job and has a role and is there for a purpose. And there's certain emotions. I mean, we tend to do that with probably most of them, right? Um, but we're starting, like society is starting to kind of lean into wanting to reduce the stigma around you know, alarm, anxiety, and um, maybe frustration. I don't know. Aggression is still really like <laughs> condemned act when it man- when frustration manifests in that way. But even her work on like shame and suicidal urges and things like that, where she's like, this, these are life preserving forces at the end of the day, and let's bring them home and find their gifts and understand them and work with them. And I just, I just love the way you spoke very poetically of it and clearly you've kind of come to the other side in some way to be able to hone those gifts and appreciate depression and most people would say that it's the enemy or something but even I mean you even use the word wrestling right like that seems to be the the relationship that we have with depression is that we that we must work to get out of it and that we must wrestle with it and get hold of it and pin it down and into submission (laughs) yeah wrestling um we were talking before we hit record that I live in Austin now but I spent 13 years in the Rocky Mountains in a kind of some small communities in Montana and wrestling is a big sport in Montana. I think it has something to do with the long winters. It gives you something. It's an indoor sport. And I remember watching these, going to these tournaments because my daughter actually wrestled for a little bit as a little girl. And you'd see these. um, So I primarily saw children and young teens and the passion of wrestling. And then watching afterwards, the tears that would come and my husband explained to me it's such a, cause he actually worked a little bit with a local high school wrestlers. He said, it's such an intense 
passionate experience of it's so intimate and it's so deep that tears are very common, whether you're winning or losing because there's so much emotion that arises in the sport, which to me is really, really interesting. And um, yeah, for me, when I use wrestling, it definitely connotes that there have been times where it has been like a battle <laughs> where mm-hmm. um, certainly um, in my twenties and um, in my, even in my early thirties, there was a way I just wanted to learn all the right psychological and spiritual tools so I could make sure I never felt depressed again. Mm. I was very driven in that. And even though the tools on the surface looked um, full of beauty and full of um, warm support, like compassion and self-compassion, there was a drive behind them though that was very understandable so having compassion for the parts of us that want to eradicate the depression Mm. behind that there was um real terror and um i think grief and uh shame and so there was a way that if i thought that if i could just find the right meditation Mm. or do enough therapy or um or study enough. I was a real student, but it was coming from this place of, I want to fix it so that it never arises again. And coming underneath that, I think a lot of my journey since then has been, how do I come underneath those layers and meet again and again? Well, this is what's here. And this is what's here. And this is what's here. Um, So wrestling can also, to me, connote that there is an intimacy, almost maybe dancing, (laughs) like when you're courting, even use the word courting depression, like when you court something, you bring your heart and you're trying to, it's almost like you're bending your knee towards it, like what's here? And certainly um, with loved ones that I've had that have had depression, that has been a real training ground in that courting because um, particularly as a mama, you know, there's, it could be so alarming when your child is suffering and when they're really deeply suffering and it's going into places that feel dark and that feel hopeless and you really worry about their well-being, you know. Um, and Gordon has certainly helped me so much with that. When I think about Gordon, my heart just warms because I think what Gordon has given me is he just returns me again and again to wholeness and to myself into what you talked about, that positive way of looking at our, ourselves and like even trusting our biology and trusting our bodies and trusting the way that we're made and trusting how our brains and our bodies and our nervous systems, you know, how they're, they're trying to help and support us and coming as an ally with, those, with ourselves rather than as an enemy. You know? mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so that courting, learning how to court the unlived and unloved life within ourselves and the unloved life within others. I think that is one of the things that depression and really any quote mental illness and any real suffering, that's, that's what it does. So I never would have asked for depression as my training ground. (laughs) Never, (laughs) you know, but there's also a sense of, um, like there's a way when I 
take it in and when it's not feeling so personal. I think that's for me when it it didn't feel like a personal wound because there's certainly the personal component we all carry of our own experiences. But um, I think for me in my 20s and 30s when I was working so hard to heal that depression and it, it felt like nothing was budging and the pain was so intense and it felt so unbearable. Um, there's a way you can start to feel punished or a way you can start to feel like you're outside looking at others. It's like, am I on the outside looking in and other people are in this warm embrace of love and I'm just looking like in the windows on the outside, Hmm. you know, feeling that sense of um, like, am I not held in the web of life? You know, that ease that others can feel, which is one of the ways that my depression will really speak to me. It will put me in that outside space. And so there's a time where it could feel like, gosh, is this some kind of punishment? And that was some of the wrestling to like, on the one hand, it is, I do have my personal experience in my life that asks for care and warmth and, and listening and empathy And also that broader collective experience is what softens some of that shame and some of that, which for me would arise as a lot of Mm self-blame. There's a lot of ways I blame myself for not being in, quote, better control of my depression. And I think, at least in American culture where I live, there's a lot of um, beliefs and cultural understandings that that's changing somewhat, but there's still a real tenor of that that can be in our, in our culture of the sense of you can just kind of create your own world. And so mm-hmm. things don't go the way that we want. It's easy then for that to go in mm-hmm. as self-blame, like, oh, it's my fault. What am I not um, doing well? And you know, we were talking about another teacher before we recorded, Stephen Jenkinson. And he taught me something that really helped me. And he talked about, competence addiction Mm. and he said there's a competence addiction that um particularly in western culture that can arise as and he and this was something that came to him when he was working he's working in hospice and working with um people who were uh, uh, with the dying and people who were very very ill and he talks about the death phobia in our culture and one of the consequences, he said, is this competence addiction where there's this way that um, we become addicted to being competent. And so we see health when we go through illness or even death, that that's somehow seen as outside the circle of health. Mm-hmm. Or there's a way that we, um, I mean, I can think of it myself. There's a way we can get this sense of power and agency when our lives are going the way we want and when we're healthy and when we're well. And then when illness comes of any form, it can be very, very difficult because of um, uh, that sense. If we lose that sense of our, um, our agency or our personal will or our capacities or capabilities. Um, and in my experience, when, when I really sank into that idea and studying with him, I thought, I think the child of competence addiction is shame because when we feel like when we're getting messages that we should always be competent and always on top of things and on the ball and onwards and upwards and um, 
The flip side of that can be a sense of shame. Well, when we go through those disintegrating parts of our lives and those times of dissolution or times of um, heartbreak or times of suffering, um, rather than it being included in the web of life, Mm -hmm. think of it as like this anomaly, like, oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong that things are falling apart or that I'm ill or that I'm experiencing the suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think what um, what depression is still teaching me is how to broaden that to include the whole of life within that circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Rather than just normalizing that, you know, there's ups, there's downs, there's day, there's mm-hmm. night, there's <laughs> there's sickness, there's health. <laughs> right even the marriage vows are like in sickness and health we should should grab a clue that like this is just the way life is it kind of it just is there's suffering and there's elation and there's you know everything in between and and that's sort of the the cycles of life the way it goes um and yet a number of things were popping up as you were describing that the competence addiction um and the death phobia. Yeah, we only want the sunny side, right? We're just like, as soon as the sun goes down every day, we're like, no, 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 this is bad. This is wrong. This is evil. <laughs> and just that allergic to dependence, right? Must be independent because dependence is bad. Dependence is an unsafe place. You've um, been exploited. And, and just the pursuit drive that has come out of um, not having our attachment needs met because of the failings of culture and all of that. And so we're just like out there pursuing, 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 pursuing um, in a very depersonalized way. Right. We should be, you know, hopefully, hopefully, ideally we would have a community that would be able to meet those attachment needs. We could actually rest, pursue at times, but if we're constantly in pursuit of, of winning, succeeding and all of that stuff, then it's just, it's just never ending. Yeah. That's so well said. I really, yeah. So much is resonating with me when you said that. And I can see, um, you know, I have um, three children in their um, early twenties and my youngest is 15 and they talk about, and I don't know if it's because the pandemic has magnified this, but there's a lot of ways I think as a culture, those attachment needs aren't being met for a lot of people. And my kids will even talk about um, my one son will say um, with a lot of grief, like he's like, I miss the world before smartphones because he remembers when smartphones came to be and when they weren't and the way that um, certainly there's positive things that have come from that, but there's also been a, a huge cost societal for a lot of ways of ways it's made us, that paradox of we have this tool of connection and yet so many of us are feeling so disconnected. Mm -hmm. So that pursuit drive is, it's like there's ways I think for many of us, we're in a chronic state of subtle pursuit and subtle alarm and subtle frustration. Yes. And it's like the sea we're all swimming in. And when you were describing that, that was exactly what that pursuit, my pursuit of healing it's exactly what it was. It was a pursuit. So even on the surface, it might have looked like I was looking for help. Because I also, with this time, I also had 20 years of eating disorders. So mm-hmm. um, they formally started, you know, when I was in high school, I became bulimic. Um, although I can look back and see 
it really kind of started in middle school when I went through some traumatic experiences and I really began using food for comfort. So at night I'd come home and I remember at night I would, if you remember when they um, came out with that cookie dough you could buy in the tube, oh, in the, yes. like the refrigerator section. And I would get a tube of the cookie dough and bottles of Pepsi. I grew up in the Midwest around the um, Great Lakes and it was Pepsi and that was when microwave popcorn had come out and I had this ritual where I would, I wouldn't even bake the cookies. I would just eat the cookie dough and then I'd have the popcorn with my Pepsi. And that was, became a holding presence for me Mm. to care for things that were really overwhelming and frightening me at that time. So um, my eating disorders and my depression kind of were, they were, they were friends, you know, they were, um, they were cohabitating my body and my heart together, you know, and um, and both spoke to, they both activated a tremendous amount of that pursuit that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. They really scared me. And so there was a way that I was like, oh my gosh, this really scares me and I need to eradicate this. And um, so those eating disorders would kind of move. They went from bulimia to uh, binge eating, to a lot of body dysmorphia, to orthorexia, where then I was trying to find, I was reading you know, hundreds of nutrition books, trying to find the right diet that would cure my eating disorders. In the same way I was reading all these books, trying to find the right thing that would cure my depression. So the energy underneath that was this very jangled, scared, um, overwhelmed, frightened um, energy that also felt really alone and that felt really ashamed. So I I felt like there was a lot of ways I was trying to fix it myself rather than really sharing with others or really letting people know just how much I was hurting. Yeah. It sounds very alpha too. And I I completely relate to your approach um, because I I tackled my own tackles <laughs> tackled my own healing journey in much the same way. Like I'm going to get hold of this and I'm in charge of this. And um, yeah, it's just the work mode, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna heal myself. It's the last thing I do. <laughs> hey, yeah. You know when I studied with Gordon. So how I find Gordon's work. Um, um, so my children's first teacher was this amazing master Montessori teacher in Montana, decades of teaching and just being in her presence. I wanted to be three years old again and go to her school. (laughs) And she had studied. um, So I was taking parenting classes with her and then she met Gordon and she became a facilitator for Gordon's work. So then I was taking parenting classes of Gordon's work through her. And all these light bulbs were going off. And one of the things that I became a parent, excuse me, really young at 22. Um, and I remember um, when my children were, a couple of them were in elementary school, they had this parenting library. And I was looking through and I read this book and I don't even remember the title. But I, what I remember was having these insights of, oh my goodness, I think this is what these developmental ideas are what I need in my relationship with food. So these dots were being connected with me. So um, with my eating disorders, 
I really went to developmental psychology and attachment to make sense because they really baffled me and confounded me because my freshman year in college, I knew I had an eating disorder. I was not in denial. And yet I felt so stuck. And um, so it's like, how is it that I'm aware and working to try to, to heal and conscious of them? And yet 20, you know, so 20 years, it was over 20 years. Um, so um, this woman, my dear friend, Maureen Bright, sent a shout out to her, this amazing teacher. So she's a facilitator for Gordon. And I was studying with her and she said to me once, she said, Carly, um, I think you need to go and study directly at the Institute and study with Gordon. She said, I really think you're right there. And I went and studied and that's when I took intensive one. Um, the first intensive at the Newfoundland Institute. And that intensive sent me into a spiritual crisis. Like you did it in person in the five-day format all at once like that? I actually did it online. Um, but um, okay. so I did it over, gosh, and I love that because it was this container of, it was over six months, I think, if I remember. Okay. Well, maybe not that long. So it was a really long, it was, you got to really marinate in it and with a group and, um, but it sent me into this spiritual crisis because um, just we were talking about the alpha complex. And for those who are listening who don't know what that is, it's this, um, it's one of the attachment defenses that can arise. And um, when we're in an alpha complex, there's this way that it doesn't feel safe to depend. And it doesn't feel safe to um, depend on others for our attachment needs. So we tend, then we're trying to, um, make them make it happen on our own and I definitely was an alpha kid <laughs> definitely and I could just even see that through my family lineage it really helped me understand like my parents my mom was a child of um, immigrants you know of their her parents were first generation Americans so they were just trying to pull themselves out of poverty and she was the oldest of six kids and um, so it helped me get a lot of compassion for just where that um, some of these patterns come up. And but he sent me into a big spiritual crisis. And the reason he did was because I realized there was a way I didn't want to depend on anything. There was a way I was trying to just steer the ship of my life spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally. Um, And uh, I just remember that moment of just sobbing in my bathroom floor because I just felt, punctured by the teachings they just went right into my heart and there was this kind of prayer I just sent out please help me feel safe to depend because um wow I really wanted to be in charge so that I could be safe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just brings kind of tears to my eyes just thinking about it wow. so that was 2010 okay, so, okay. Uh, when I had that crisis and um I didn't know it at the time, but there was a way of just sending out that, you know, we have those crying on our bathroom floor prayers that you know, <laughs> on the bathroom floor. I oh. love that. The bathroom floor prayers. <laughs> yes. Where that was a crack in my, my armor of mm. please help me. You know. And that's how the light gets in. Right. <laughs> 
how the light gets in. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love that that line from Leonard Cohen says it so well. Um, there was a way I was hustling around trying to repair all my cracks myself. Right. Patch the cracks up. There's going to be a leak. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> it, it was this way I was holding myself back from life. So I think that the biggest heartache of both the depression and the eating disorders is the way that it would, I would isolate myself from life and from others. And what would happen for me is the more the depression and the eating disorders were in chronic and continued, um, I remember being in college. That was, I had a huge kind of incidence. I remember my sophomore year, the depression just came in like this thundercloud and trailed me for my remaining time in college. And I also was bulimic my entire time in college. And I remember when I graduated feeling so damaged and so broken, this sense of, You know, um, that was shocking for me. It was just shocking. And then that kind of trailed me. And the, so the longer the depression and eating disorders continued, the more shame I felt and the more panicked and frantic I felt, the more pursuit I was in trying to fix it, the more frustrated I was, which went inwards towards myself. And the more than I would, I just felt such tenderness. Like I was like, are the people I love so tired and frustrated with me that I'm always calling them on the floor of my bathroom crying, right? Feeling overwhelmed. So there was a way it just felt so raw and so tender that I started to feel worried that I was this real burden on people and that they were getting annoyed or tired with me or they were, like it's one thing to call them crying on the bathroom floor for a couple months or even a year. But when you're doing that over and over and over and over again. So there's ways I really kind of shut myself off from life and people mm-hmm. and creates this huge well of loneliness that, you know, um, so yeah, isn't it, isn't it something how, it's like depression has these cycles that kind of feed themselves where for me, the shame would feel the isolation, which would feed the depression, which would feed the shame, which would feed the isolate, which would feed the frantic fixing. Mm-hmm. And it felt like that prayer in my bathroom was something that where I was able to like to put a pause to that cycle and ask for some help to come in. And I think that was one of the times I really asked to, I put myself in the dependent position in that moment of please help me. And that alpha comes up, it still comes up, but um, there's a way there's a return that's a little, that's different now where, um, although just this week I was on a meditation, I did a one day meditation retreat and so much grief came up in that retreat for me. And I realized, Oh, there's that, young one who felt like she just had to carry the world on her shoulders and that she had to just soldier on and be tough. And the one that felt so much shame about being so sensitive and mm. I could really feel, um, I never, I hadn't connected that for now until we just talked, but it is, it's that same place. 
mm-hmm. which makes sense why this weekend I just felt I just felt a lot of grief and felt really sad. Um, yeah, what a just what a journey. So many layers. So many layers. And I think what Gordon gave me too is a way of beholding all those layers. Mm. Literally behold them. It's like he gave me a whole different set of eyes. I felt like he laid my life out in front of me and all of a sudden I made sense. Mm-hmm. Turn the lights on, like, have a look. (laughs) So it was both excruciating. Yeah, it was like, burns the eyes, like, to see that much. (laughs) Yeah. And that feeling, I think about Sarah Payton's work, who I love, too. Um, She does work with resonance and healing. It's so beautiful. And she says, there's nothing more healing to the brain than being understood. Yes. And I think that's where we're... And another is mirroring to us the way that, oh, you make sense and you're, and you're understood, but also to ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And um, I'm also thinking about another teacher I love. I'm studying with Bonnie Badnock this year. Oh, I know who she is. Yeah. Oh, I took a, like a brain, brain yeah. training or something or other with her. Yeah, she's, she's very lovely. The Heart of Trauma. And this is a book, I mean, this year-long intensive is really kind of taking a lot of those themes and unpacking them over a year's time. And um, she taught me something that I never heard before. And she said something like, I'm trying to remember the exact statistic, 90% of depression is actually sympathetic arousal, that it's, it's actually what's underneath that is alarm. Which is interesting because we tend to think of depression as that, you know, that collapse state. And yes. I'm thinking of, um, I can never say his name, Yak Paksep or Ponsep's work. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. motivation circuits in the brain. So Sarah and Bonnie are both kind of teaching me about those. And um, he talks about that. We could talk about that. That's another helpful way of understanding depression. But, um, but they talk about it's, that idea that we tend to think that, oh, it's like this very shut down energy. And certainly in my depression, there was an element of that where it's almost like I learned helplessness where um, if you think of underneath frustration, just that life force, the emergence, um, what Pongsa calls the seeking circuit. It's like that part of us that wants to emerge and be and all that we are, the part of us that reaches out for connection when that circuit gets really shut down, like what Newfeld talks about, when the sine wave of emotion gets shut down, mm-hmm. then um, we, of course we can feel rage. We can feel that frustration, that thwarting of that expression and of our needs and of our being just feeling like it can go out and affect change in the world. But um, so that rage can come in, in, but then it often goes to kind of a, a grief and then it can go to a collapse or a shutdown or a despair, where it's almost like a why bother. And for me, there was almost like this learned helplessness where um, I did feel that way. And so I wonder, to use Newfeld terms, I've used this term for myself, like I need to have a working power center, that there was a way I didn't feel like that I could affect change in my life, the places where I actually could affect change. Um, 
And I was really good at going to futility and really going to that place of being able to accept what I can't change and to grieve. But there was also a way that um, because of some of the relationships in my life and just my life experiences and some of the trauma I'd experienced, there was a way that um, I just, there's, I just shut down kind of happened. And then this huge grief underneath that, because there's a way that it feels like I'm not really living or um, the gifts that I came to bring to the world are just being squashed. Mm. You know? um, so part of that has been working with that sense of to have a working power center where I can be moved to futility mm. and also be moved to affect change where I can, where I can affect change. And so kind of activating that seeking circuit. And it's interesting in Sarah Payton's work when she talks about healing depression and she's someone who had, she describes just a brutal depression for for many, many, many years. She talks about how um, for her, you have to kind of activate the caring circuit, which is that self-compassion and that understanding Mm. um, that kind of we're talking about here, Um, but also that seeking system. So it feels like it can start moving again. So one of the really practical, simple things that, because I still have days where the depression can come in like a weather storm, really intense, is something that um, a local therapist here in Austin um, taught me. uh, And it was that to do a small thing where you set a goal and you complete it. Mm. And I think intuitively what she's... um, arcing towards is if our seeking system, if we can have a place where we feel like we can have a sense of healthy power or affect change, it also fills us with a sense of agency and a sense of um, kind of confidence. And she talks about, it can be really simple. It could be like making a grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah. It can be, you know, in other words, not making it something, but doing a small thing like that. I think what it would start to do for me is activate that sense of, Oh Yeah. I can start to have um, a working power center um, and um, start to kind of move some of that energy that felt so stuck and so shut down. Um, yeah, I think it's like to get a hit of dopamine, right? Like, because if you, if you have a really big goal, like for me, for example, like I, I had to do this statistics course online, completely self um, um managed and self um you know there's there's it's just me in the the online textbook or whatever right and the assignments and stuff and so um if you know when it's broken down into these little units of like okay if i can just get to the end of this chapter or just get to the end of that page then you get this surge of dopamine that pushes you to go on right it's kind of like okay get to here and then get to there. Right. But if you look at the entirety of the, the journey, it's, it's completely overwhelming and you just might as well oh, collapse. Right. Right. I have so much empathy for you, my son. <laughs> Thank you. School and he had to take statistics online in nursing school because of the pandemic. And he's, it was, I mean, statistics is hard enough <laughs> without, Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, so that reminds me of something my husband told me recently. So he took a training recently here in outside of Austin, where I live, there are, um, this wonderful couple that they offer something called natural lifemanship and it's a therapy an equine horse therapy, um, attachment based and trauma informed. 
So they teach natural lifemanship to both people in the horse world who are just working with horses, but primarily to um, therapists who are wanting to offer equine therapy. Mm. I had a training a couple of weeks ago that my husband went to, and I hope I'm going to get the science right. You might have to correct me, but he was explaining how when you're in a relate, he was telling the story about how his wife was asking him to fix something in the house um, that was broken or whatever, and how he was feeling this stress of, I need to get this thing done. And um, he was talking about kind of how cortisol levels in our body, the stress hormone, stress hormone lows, lowers and raises. And so he was feeling that activation of the stress hormone of, I need to get this thing done for my wife. And then she was kept, you know, reminding him. And um, so he did it. And after he did it, um, he described how she came up behind him and she gave him a hug and just said, Oh, thanks, honey. You know, so good to have that thing fixed. And he was saying that what that does is it lowers cortisol. Mm. I think he was talking about this, telling the story in the context of like how we work together and how we can support people when they're facing a lot of stress or really stressful tasks, how our presence and our support can help modulate that. Mm. So he was talking about how his cortisol goes down. But this is what I found really interesting. He said, if um, that, so he got this flood of, it might have been, um, what's the bonding hormone? Oxy. Uh, oh, oxytocin, yeah. Oxytocin, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I always get that confused with the drug. The, um, oh, there's a drug. <laughs> That's similar in name. <laughs> Oxycodone. Oxy- yeah. My son just got his wisdom teeth out. So he's on painkillers. So we were <laughs> laughing about the mix up of the names. But anyway, um, yeah, that bonding hormone gets released, which lowers cortisol. But he also says you get this rush of dopamine. And what he said, if I'm remembering the science correctly, is without that relational connection, that the dope, the stress only goes down. And then as soon as the next task goes up, the stress goes up again. So in other words, you get this momentary sense of satisfaction of, oh, I took care of that thing that mm. I've been meaning to do for weeks, but then it goes right back up. Mm. Part of what relationship does is it, it um, makes that sense of um, satiation and warmth. It makes it much more lasting and you get that warm sense of connection and I found that so fascinating because arcing back to what we were talking about if I'm always I was in that place if I need to fix my eating disorders and my um yes even, even when I was seeking therapists it's not that I was I was even seeking therapists but there was this drive of no I'm gonna I'm gonna do it on my own there was a way then I was in that constant kind of cortisol space and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well that teaching really sank into me and made me think about no wonder we all feel so stressed because if we're neat, if we're not having those relational connections, then we're just in a constant cortisol state trying to get those dopamine hits. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, it completely makes sense that, you know, it's not really going to sink in unless somebody really understands you and sees you and can kind of witness you. And yeah, but it probably works both ways with both suffering and, kind of accomplishing something great right. like so it's that's... like we never get enough of that satiation there's if we're just driven by our own pursuit we'll never we'll never 
get there, right? We'll just continue to do task after task after task after task forever until we run ourselves in the ground or whatever happens. Um, and same thing with our suffering. Like, yes, we have a relationship with ourselves and we can come alongside ourselves, but also when somebody really sees us and holds space for us and says, I, I, I believe you, I understand you, I get it. I see where you're at. It's just like instantly calming. And there's this permission to just be in that state. Yes. Oh, just listening to you say that I can just feel my whole system going. Yes. (laughs) Because I think that's what, um, that's been some of my own, you know, learning ground of, um, I think that's one of the places where, um, and I don't know if this is true for other cultures in the world, but certainly um, the Western culture that, I live in and that was raised in is learning how to be that space of presence for another. Um, Because there is something um, when you're with someone who can see you and witness you. I remember a time when um, this was not that long ago where I was crying really hard with um, a small circle of friends we were on Zoom, um, and these are actually people that I did the did a training with a couple years ago, and we still meet regularly every month or every two weeks, and we just kind of connect and talk about our lives, but also about kind of how what we studied is still rippling through us, mm. and um, she's kind of a soul sister, and when um, I was crying so hard, um, and I've had long COVID for the last two years, which is a whole other topic of grief and oh, adaptation and just really, really challenging. And um, I was, I just cried so hard. And one of the women with me said something that was so healing. She said, Carly, you never have to protect us from you. Like all, it was such an invite, like Gordon says, an invitation to exist. Mm-hmm. And afterward, my other friend, she called me. And even how she, the message she left on my phone, she even said it like this. She said, oh, Carly, the faces that you were making while you were crying, they were so beautiful. And I could just see the pain in your face. And again, there was this beautiful mirroring that she was giving me. Because often when we cry, when we're crying really intensely, you know, we feel that the anguish is all over our faces. It's just that pure anguish. And she was mirroring my anguish with such reverence Mm. and such love and acceptance that all my anguish was, it's like your anguish doesn't frighten me. Yes. I'm not not trying to change it. Yeah. And even the, like what an honor it is to, to share that anguish with you. And that experience of, it just goes so deep. Um, oh, it's such a gift to receive that. Yeah, yeah. You're not too intense. Like I'm. Right. My intention is bigger than that. Why right. I am right here with you. Yeah. And what's interesting for me is one of the places I can tell that's still um, in me that it's it can be really hard for me to take that in. It's um, it touches the edges of my own vulnerability. 
And sometimes I will even pull away after someone has seen me that deeply. Yeah. Because there's places in me that it, that it's challenging to really open that part of me that wants to stay protected. And um, so that's interesting to watch in myself, how there's such hunger for that attachment and connection. Yet there's also places in me that will pull away often after I've been really met Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of the vulnerability it brings up. Yeah. So like there's all these layers that we see and, I think that's part of what um, this is a friend who also told me um, once that, you know, the wound is also our womb. It's the womb of um, so much that's born through us, Mm -hmm. you know, like I wouldn't wish depression on someone because the suffering, it just can be so intense. And I, the truth of what my friend is saying too, that, there's also things that are often born through those cracks within us. So it's this paradox of holding both, you know, of, um, yeah, just holding that giant paradox. But, mm. Well, it's interesting what you were describing with the crying, and it, it reminded me of the cultural term that we use, the ugly cry, where we've kind of that ugly cry has been kind of maybe made fun of or thought to be a shameful thing and I mean most people use it about themselves they're like I don't want to show my vulnerability to the world so I don't want to ugly cry and then and they hide but I, I feel like there's probably been in like movies or something where it was made fun of or I don't know how it came into the vernacular the ugly cry but it's this shameful thing where we don't want to show ourselves um, or maybe others would actually have judgment of like, Oh, that person's ugly crying. Like, Oh, you know, yeah. hide that shame. Go, go some, go crawl into a hole and do that somewhere else. That's such a powerful question. Yeah. When did crying, I mean, as soon as you said that, I'm like, what a beautiful poem if someone, a poet could write mm. about the ugly cry. Yeah. When did, mm. You know, when did crying become something so shameful? I remember my my youngest son when, oh gosh, he was a little boy. So I'm trying to think how old he was. Oh, probably like six, seven, that age, which is a age when a lot of boys start to lose their tears. Mm-hmm. Because they that's where they start to take in, you know, all the messages of our culture of, particularly little boys and men don't cry, which are so heartbreaking. I remember he told me once we were somewhere. He said, mama, this is not a place where I can have my tears. Wow. He actually said that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He would say little things like that. He was little. We used to sometimes in my head, I'd think, okay, Yoda. Cause he would <laughs> also the kid who at three years old when I was being really short with him and crabby, and I was trying to get him in the car to go to school. And he just looked at me very pointedly and said, I could hear you if you weren't yelling at me. Wow. I could hear you if you weren't yelling at me. Oh, oh my, my goodness. goodness. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was a good, well said, kiddo. <laughs> <laughs> so- to just wake you up. 
Right. Yeah, that's right. I know. I can't hear people when they're yelling at me either. You're right. Uh, you could, I was, all I could feel was my exasperation. Like, get in the car. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, so uh, but there was a way of um, just that we can feel where our tears are welcome. Mm-hmm. And, and where they're not. And that ugly cry, yeah, when did, because when you really sit with that, it's a very shaming statement. It's saying that crying when you're fully crying and weeping and mourning and your face is expressing all of that and you're sweating and you're shaking and you're having a full physical experience of grief or sadness that we see that somehow as something ugly or something you don't want to have someone see. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking now of how in some cultures they bring in people whose role is to bring out the weeping at the funerals. So they the wailers. Yeah. That what a different idea that, Oh no, they celebrate Um, because there's an understanding of the grief needs to be expressed and it needs to be shared in this community and there needs to be a place of honor for that. Um, I know for myself, because I've carried so much shame about being sensitive because I'm very prone to tears and I don't think that will ever change. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think back to um, how... People in um, my country, they really said this esteem for Jackie Kennedy when her husband was killed, um, President Kennedy's wife, because she was so dignified in her grief at the funeral. Oh, my goodness. Oh. I don't mean this at all as a criticism to Jackie Kennedy, because who knows what she was. Right, she was probably about. numb, and hopefully she oh. didn't go out and have those tears or something. She was probably right? numb and felt the pressure of an entire nation and their eyes upon her in some yeah. way that's a cultural message. It's not personally what she did, but she's not going to feel safe to let that out. No, there was no safety. Um, I can only imagine her heartbreak. Oh, but to me, what it's, it speaks to this cultural understanding of we praise people who are, it's like we hold up as this example to grieve without looking like you're grieving. But I'm sure inside she was just shattered. Um, and I carried that kind of image inside myself and I always felt like I was kind of the one crying on my bathroom floor. Like there was a way that I felt like there was something shameful about me because I was so easily moved and I would cry deeply over things and, um, you know, just the, the sorrow I would feel or have those ugly cries. Yeah. And in spiritual communities, I would be a part of, I'm very, I got a very similar message. And, you know, there's a lot of spiritual messages about um, emotions that I have a lot of real difficulty with of um, where um, certain emotions are invited and some are seen as really negative. And so those messages would just, um, 
kind of re-traumatize in me that place that already felt like I shouldn't be crying and stop crying and um, Mm -hmm. all those things. So yeah, befriending the ugly cry, like, yeah, I, I think about times when I've been with someone when they're crying that deeply, it really is an honor. No kidding. Yeah. Such an honor for someone to share their grief with you and their heartbreak. And, uh, mm. well, the ugly cry label as well as thinking about this is that it really is a female label. Like it's a criticism of the feminine, right? Like we don't hear that, that judgment. Um, like you don't hear about men ugly crying, like it's a female thing and it's very negating of the emotion. It's that, Oh, you're just, you're having a, you know, maybe you have PMS or something and you're just out there having this ugly cry and there's no reason for it. And, you know, it really is like a, a condemnation of the feminine or, or female. That's a well, great boys, of, boys and men's tears have been shut down long before mm-hmm. anyway, so they don't have the ugly cry. Um, right. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about. Although I think about so many um, gay and trans um, young men that I know. Um, who are deep, deep feeling beings and some of the shame that they have um, about ugly cries. So yeah, it's like the more feminine aspects of our being, whether we're male or female or whatever gender we are. um, Yeah, I took a class from um, a woman. It's called Women Awake, Therese Jornlin. And it was so beautiful. Oh my gosh. And she really teaches in that class. Um, she has a TED talk where she talks about um, reclaiming the wisdom of the female body. And she talks about, um, there's many ways her work goes, but one of the things that we really explored is um, kind of what we were talking about earlier and the way that she was talking about how a woman cycle, um, when you cycle every month, you go through all the seasons and all the layers. So you go into a, a mini grief, you go into winter you go into dying and you come back into spring and reborn. And at one point she said, in this Ted talk she gave, you know, I don't think we'd ever just say, let's get rid of fall. <laughs> like we just shouldn't have fall. We shouldn't. And so one of the things um, she's been teaching me is more deeply trusting those cycles of disintegration and dissolution in our lives and more deeply trusting. She calls the bottom half of the cycle. Um, Cause in a more, um, without a balanced masculine feminine, that feminine cycle, the seasons, the menstrual cycle, it's not trusted and it's not valued. And um, at one point she said, I hope that something is disintegrating in your life. Mm. And that really struck me that. So there's a way now when I'm feeling like this week, I live in Texas and the school shootings have just shattered my heart. And I felt so much grief this week. And I think, thank God, thank God, because it is something to grieve. And I almost didn't think I'd be able to do this talk because I've been feeling so sad. Do this, I'm not talk, but do this uh, meeting with you. Um, and so that those cycles of disintegration, you know. I hope that I feel dissolved by this horrible tragedy, 
Yes. Even to trust, same way Gordon really taught me to trust my emotions have a purpose, to trust the wisdom of my nervous system and my body. It's like there's a way she's teaching me to trust the quote dark, think about the dark, the feminine, the dark aspects of life, the lunar aspects of life, and not just the solar aspects of life. Mm-hmm. Of tr- can I more deeply trust that? And one of the things she teaches in her work is that when if young ones are taught when they start menstruating that that is she says it's a way we become our wisdom so that when we become menopausal we've had 30 or 40 years of needing our wisdom every month so it becomes embodied which oh so beautiful that is not what i was taught about my cycle when i was (laughs) you know in 13 and oh my gosh so she has such beautiful wisdom to share. And, um, but for me, that's one of the places that is continuing to work through my body is this opening to the dark. Because what can happen now, like this week, when I felt this real sadness over um, after this retreat and then the school shootings, and I have a lot of grief of the ways the long COVID continues to, my health isn't the same that it was beforehand. There's a way that there's times I can still feel panicked when that real sadness comes in of, oh my goodness, is this going to be an overwhelming depression? So uh, that befriending the depression is an ongoing journey of, um, it's like that open opening the doorway isn't just a one-time thing. Um, it's an opening and then noticing when I'm feeling shut down and scared and then the compassion of, well, there's probably a really good reason why I'm feeling frightened of that and bringing tenderness to the frightened parts. Um, and uh, just that returning of, oh, okay, this is what's here. It's like that, what you said, that coming alongside ourselves, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. coming alongside the frustrated parts or the parts that are worried or the parts that are um, annoyed or the parts that are tired or the parts that are um, angry. I think anger is probably the most challenging emotion Mm -hmm. for me to invite um, Mm -hmm. aggression, not so much anger, aggression, but yeah. So how, like, you've, you've kind of touched on how it manifests for you. Um, like you said, there was some self-blame, mm-hmm. shut down, learned helplessness. Like, mm-hmm. when you've had your most debilitating, I don't know if it's been really debilitating at points, like, what did it look like? Like, because mm-hmm. we all use this word, but what for you was that state That is a beautiful question because you're right. We talk, I think I've sometimes wondered, I remember um, there's a magazine called the sun by Cy Safransky is the publisher. It's published out of North Carolina. It's filled with these beautiful, a lot of first person stories and essays and poems. And it's very vulnerable and very real. There was a, an essay once where the publisher said something 
And I wish I could say it with the eloquence which he wrote it, but he said something like this, just as the Inuit have different words for snow. Uh, you know, there's, uh, we should have different words for tears. Mm. You know, the tears that um, have been cried too long, not to cry too long. How did he say it? Like the tears that have been cried um, and the, the tears that have kind of blown away or the tears that long to be shed. Like, in other words, having all this room and understanding for all these different kinds of tears. Mm. And I, I'm not saying it's, it's a beautiful quote, if you can find it. Um, if you want to, I can probably find it. If it would be mm. helpful, I have the show notes or something. But um, I thought, what about depression? It's very similar that we use this word depression and it can have a hundred different ways it looks like, you know? Um, And so for me, when it's been at its most debilitating um, and this brings tears to my eyes, I will spend a lot of time in my house and uh, have a hard time really leaving. And it's this pain that feels like it has no end. It's um, like, I don't know if you've ever done a really challenging workout or even like you were talking about with your statistics class. It's like, like this is really hard and I know it's going to end. Right. <laughs> like the class is at some point is going to be over. Right. But there's a way that pain of the depression feels so overwhelming and all encompassing and never ending. It feels outside of time. Like, it's never, ever going to end. Which would fill me with such a sense of, like, panic. Like, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. It's so painful. It would feel like this. Like, all down the front of my body, it felt like, uh, like, not just my physical body, but just, like, just this bruises. It felt like being bruised all down my heart, all down my guts, my stomach. Just, I would, I would, um, there's a, I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures from Harry Harlow's monkey experience, experiments he did. They're so heartbreaking to look at when he separated monkeys from their mamas and then did experiments to see how they reacted with these surrogate mothers. Well, there's this picture that I saw once of one of these baby monkeys, and he's like this. I'll see if I can do it with my camera. He's completely huddled over like this. Oh, yeah. Like his arms are over his head. He's curled in this tiny ball, huddled in this wire cage. He's as small as he can be and just like completely huddled over. Like just duck and cover, like just full. Duck and cover. And then there's another one where you can see him kind of looking out the side and his eyes are so big and he looks utterly terrified and forlorn. That is how it felt. Like just Mm -hmm. the, like I would fantasize about wanting to just like digging a pile on the leaves in the woods and digging a hole, literally just like a depression, which is interesting, right? mm-hmm. and just cuddle in the earth and cover myself with the leaves in the safe place where I could just be held by the dirt and be cradled, and but also have no one see me 
Mm-hmm. It's like the way I didn't want to be seen or had any eyes on me. Um, just feeling so raw and just, it almost felt like physical pain. You know, the hurt was like, I couldn't breathe. I just, you know, oh, but that terror of being in that place of like this void of pain and there's no one there and it's never going to end. Which is interesting because I had a therapist once tell me the emotional brain can't tell time. Mm-hmm. There's a way it just feels like never ending. And I would feel, I would um, do everything I could to just make it through the day. And it, and um, it happened a lot, you know, when my kids were little. And so in many ways, having my kids to care for is what would help me just get through the day because I'd cook them a meal or read them a story, it would, you know, just trying to get through or you know, go for a walk or um, so that would help just help me through that space. But I remember sometimes I'd just collapse on the floor like, it just hurts so bad. I don't know how I can get through this. Um, and many times feeling really suicidal. And it's not so much that I wanted to hurt myself or um, or abandon my loved ones. But it was the only thing that I thought would stop the pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'd fantasize a lot about suicide. And even like an early death, like, please just take me out of the life. Please just, oh, you know. Um, so those places of, of just a, just this despair of this feeling in that moment, what I would feel is like, this hurts so bad and it's never going to end and it's never going to change and there's no way out. Um, and I'd kind of pull myself out somehow to like, if I needed to go to the grocery store or, um, but I, or go do something, but I would really isolate myself emotionally. And I felt really worried because I knew it would, it was impacting my children in the sense of they could, kids can feel, you know, they could feel what was going on. And I didn't know because they were little, I didn't know how to really talk to them about it or what to say or, Oh my gosh. So then there was this whole other layer of shame and all that I knew about attachment. It's like, Oh my gosh. Well, there was this burden. I felt like I'm really hurting and harming my kids. The ones I love the most and yet feeling, you know, so powerless to. And that to make. just makes it worse. Right. Yeah. And I would really isolate. It would be hard for me to reach out to people to let them know because um, and that got better over time where I had some people where I could just say on a scale of one to 10, like, let me, like, let me know, um, you know, what number you're at and that would help. And I could cry with them, but I really turned really inwards a lot, you know? Um, and um there was a time when I, the suicidality was really strong and I had a friend and she would call me every day, check on me, you know, um, 
yeah, just, uh, I spent a lot of time crying on my bathroom floor. You know, just, and actually I would go into, I have a little walk, I have a, a small walk-in closet. I have a small house, so there's not a lot of places to go and cry in private. It's one of the places that made it hard because when you've got a big family and you want to have a place where you can just go away. So um, I have long taken, I call my walks and cries, where I've long taken walks and I'll just cry and cry and cry. And if I'm feeling really vulnerable, I'll go at desk or at night mm-hmm. So you can cry and no one can see you. Mm. you know? um, but I'd go in my closet and I would, um, um, it was cool in there and dark. And I had this giant teddy bear that had been one of my kids, like giant, like four feet big, you know. And I put Mr. Bear, what's his name? I put Mr. Bear in my closet when my daughter didn't. She's like, yeah, I don't need to keep Mr. Bear anymore. And I kept Mr. Bear in my closet and I would go and just lay in his lap and I would cuddle in this little ball and I'd cry with Mr. Bear. And sometimes my husband would find me, he'd come and hold me in the closet. But that closet was a real refuge and, um, and it was a real moment for me when um, I decided I think I could give Mr. Bear to another, like I was ready to let Mr. Bear go. He comforted me for a couple years and um because that felt like a safe place like I could cry my tears and that's what food was for me too a lot of my eating disorders food was that safe place where I could be held emotionally you know um but I gave Mr. Bear my friend who had three little boys who were like five seven and nine at the time or four six and eight somewhere like that and he was a surprise from Santa and it was really sweet and special to kind of take the surprise over with Mr. Bear. And I remember her little, her one little boy told me, she asked him, what was your favorite thing about the hall? And he said, oh, Mr. Bear. And he'd go cuddle on Mr. Bear's lap and read with him. And, um, that helped me let go of Mr. Bear. Mm. Um, but I was ready. I wouldn't have given it away if I wasn't there yet. But that's what that depression on a day-to-day life would look like and it would you know Ed, that's when it would be like at level 10 but there's a lot of ways my depression was like in a scale one to ten like a chronic level six or seven mm-hmm. where it wasn't at the intensity where it's like oh my gosh i can't do this anymore but it was super painful and every day and there was a way i think i just learned to endure that that i don't know was necessarily quote healthy in the sense of I didn't know what else to do, if that makes sense. And I don't think I even realized how much pain I was in because we all adapt to wherever we're at, right? So I just had this kind of like a low-grade fever. I had this low sadness that was always there that I just carried with me. Um, And then when people would see that, I would often feel ashamed, almost like, Oh God, my humanity showing, they can see it. There was a way I didn't want people to see that because so many of the ways people responded to that hurt was so painful. Mm -hmm. So um, I felt like I had to protect myself from other people's responses to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you probably did. (laughs) So there was a way I didn't want to 
share, you know, show my sadness. And so I remember once even walking my dog, um, there's this, um, this beautiful pond right by my house. It's such a refuge. Nature is a huge refuge for me. And boy, to cry to tear, to cry with trees and ponds and owls can be so healing, particularly if you don't feel like you can share it with human companions. And I would go and walk my dogs and really um, like even have these live oaks in Texas. And I would, you, some of the limbs kind of go out almost even parallel so you can lay on them. And I would find these trees and I'd go lay on the trees. And But I met this woman, the neighbor I hadn't met before, and she actually had a newborn. Um, so I was admiring her baby and saying congratulations. And, and we happened to meet in another part of the walk in front of the pond because her two older children who were probably oh, four and seven were playing in the pond and my dogs were going and playing in the pond. And she said to me, she said, um, yeah, it was really nice meeting you. And out of the blue, she said, and you really have this real sadness about you. <laughs> and I felt kind of shocked because I just met her. So part of me felt a little angry, like I felt a little violated, like, oh gosh, I don't know if... Um, there's a way I felt like my boundaries, I think, were a little violated by it. But I, I think she really meant well, you know. But I felt shocked because I'm like, wow, is it that obvious? Mm. And I felt exposed. Mm. And I felt like I just wanted to wrap this mantle around myself, kind of like that image of wanting to go lay in the leaves. Mm-hmm. There's a way I just wanted to wrap something around me. Like when I'm feeling really sad, I want to have a coat on. Literally, even if it's 80 degrees and hot here, you know, um, Fahrenheit or uh, super, super warm, you know, because I felt safer having that coat around me because there's a way I felt protected. Yeah. I feel so seen because, um, yeah, it's just so interesting that we both, so long for and need other people and yet sometimes being with other people feels like the least safe thing we can do (laughs) oh totally it's like if somebody's grieving and generally speaking we don't have a culture that understands that or knows how to support people who are grieving um they might actually be safer not with people because they go out and get wounded by their friends when their friends say things like you know, like, oh, just get over it or, you know, just distract yourself or whatever those um, platitudes and advice that is exactly the opposite of go into it or feel or just feeling so unable to be with that person in that pain and then that person feeling that much more lonely where it actually exacerbates the loneliness instead of creating a feeling of, of connection that they need. It's so helpful how you said that. Yeah, it exacerbates the loneliness. It actually confirms the trauma. It confirms the trauma of I'm too much or I'm all on my own or I can't feel safe with people or um, it kind of perpetuates it for all of us culturally, which is one of the reasons I know for me, I, I just feel so encouraged that there are so many people today who I think are trying to change that dialogue. Um, I remember reading uh, Megan Devine's book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Have you yes. heard of it? I have heard of that. I haven't read it though, but uh, 
a friend that I do grief support groups with, she has read that and referenced it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember when I read it, I I wasn't mourning the death of a loved one. I was mourning this the grief under in the depression. And reading her book was so helpful for me um, through that because she expressed and validated a lot of my experience with depression that I imagine is also true for people who are grieving the loss of a loved one or grieving the loss of, there's so many things that we grieve. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why Gordon's work that's one of the places it was very um, powerful for me was the way he reframed sadness for mm-hmm. me. And I think that's where some of my other teachers, like I think about a book I read that was so healing for me um, by Miriam Greenspan. And I'm blanking on the title, um, Healing Through the Dark Emotions, Befriending. Oh, yes. I started that one. And it's, yeah, it's very nice. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, and one of my first kind of mentors, um, her name's Abby Satius, and she wrote a book called Finding the um, Deep River Within for uh, women, um, kind of women who are struggling with overdoing and, and stress and, and burnout. And one of her six core practices was befriending emotions. And she's actually the one that introduced me to that book. And that was so... Um, she was probably one of the first places that I can think of that started to open that door for me of, wow, I could, I can befriend some of these emotions that I, that I'm really struggling with. Um, So people who, I think that's a lot of the teachers that I resonate with and that seek to the places where I seek help or guidance or mentoring or wisdom or inspiration tend to fall in that camp of places that really invite and um, welcome emotion and vulnerability. Um, Particularly as someone who is very sensitive and feels deeply. Uh I think that's one of the, you know, when, when we were talking about that phase where I was really trying to eradicate all my trauma and <laughs> fix all my wounds part of that was I was trying to not be sensitive yeah give them all the eviction notice <laughs> all the eviction notice. that would make a great New Yorker cartoon <laughs> oh my gosh I can just picture someone creating something really funny about that but yeah there was a thing that um yeah I I wanted to eradicate my sensitivity because there was a way underneath my eating disorders and underneath the depression, what there really was, um, particularly, actually both of them. Let me see if I can put words to it. This sense that if I hadn't been so sensitive Mm. or so vulnerable, I wouldn't have gotten so hurt by the experiences in my life. Mm. It kind of goes back to that competence addiction. There was a way that I felt shame that I didn't, handle pain better yes you didn't armor up enough yeah because there was a way that I got my feelings would get hurt really easily when I was a kid I was really tender-hearted but also the things that I experienced in my life 
that were painful went really deep. Mm-hmm. And so there was a way that I felt angry at myself and ashamed that like those people who have, would have things happen and it would just kind of roll off their back. Mm. I wasn't like that. And so there was a way I felt that there was something wrong with me and that I needed to be tougher. It needed to be kind of more cool. So I can think of so many times as a kid where I would be really hurt or really scared. And I would almost take this stoic kind of response and mm-hmm. pretend that I was fine when mm-hmm. I wasn't fine. And almost just like, really, I would think I was frozen, you know, but I wouldn't let people know, ouch, that really hurt or stop or don't do that or even cry. Or there was a way I felt like it wasn't that my reactions were somehow too big. It was almost like the shame of being too human Mm -hmm. hurt too easily or the shame about being in pain. Which again, then when I would I was kind of on my spiritual quest, that would often get triggered by that because I'd hear, you know, people would quote Eckhart Tolle at me when I was like upset, you know, like you're in your pain body and like and inside I'm thinking that is not helpful. Mm-hmm. It would tr- it would hit that same place of shame, like oh no, now I'm a spiritual failure because you're supposed to be equanimous and not have any of these emotions, yeah. <laughs> right, so. I think one of those core wounds under both the eating disorders and the depression was this sense of that things went so deep in for me and that I was, it's almost like the shame of being wounded. Yeah. Uh, So I was trying also to not be so sensitive. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the more trauma you have in your life, the more than I was prone to tears because I had all this buildup and then the PT and then years of years of PTSD. And so then you're really activated and it would just kind of perpetuate this cycle. Right. And then I had a few therapists that were a little bit shaming and Mm. is that confusing? Wow. And, Oh, traumatizing, you know, well, therapy so, training does not involve a lot of like processing of one's own wounds and stuff. It's, it's like very, you know, theoretical and stuff like that. So it's kind of baffling to me that some people are given the role of, you know, now go out and have this role when they're like grossly unprepared for holding that kind of space. Yeah. It just, it, that's so interesting. I've wondered about that or, you know, even I mean, therapists are people too. I guess I, I had the assumption that if you're a therapist, that that's one of the things that you have is that capacity and presence to hold space and an understanding. And I think there's a lot of therapists who do have that, but there are some who don't. And um, it that was really confusing. But, um, you know, they're also really, I found really wonderful therapists who, oh, such gifts yeah um hold that space so beautifully but um yeah it's uh that place of which again is that deep underneath all those layers i think the theme for my experiences with depression has been befriending Mm -hmm. it's and welcoming you know befriending and welcoming the sensitive nature that i came into this world with you know, befriending and welcoming um, 
my responses to the experiences in my life rather than shaming myself for them, you know, and the, um, yeah, this, this deep well of acceptance, I think is underneath that. And caring for anger too, I think is a big part because underneath a lot of that alpha, I am going to put on my bootstraps and fix this. There was anger and underneath the anger, there was grief. And there were ways I felt sad about ways I felt let down by either my community or um, people in my life. You know, my dear mama had um, really, really intense depression um, starting when I was in utero. And I think there was a way, and she and I have done so much repair and healing, and she's an amazing person just amazing. And, um, but I think there was a way, particularly when I was younger in my teens and twenties, I was really angry because I didn't understand her depression. And in my mind, it was something she should have just been able to fix. Mm. And that anger drove that part of me. That's like, I'm going to show you all and I am going to do this perfectly and I'm going to figure it out and I'm never going to be depressed. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Really, you can feel the kind of umbrage, but under the umbrage, there was justice, grief, yes, fear. Because I'd been really, really, I was really scared by um, by my mom's depression. I was really scared of it, and so that um, when I was able, Gordon helped. Gordon's work really helped me see that and face that, and you know, forgive, um, I'll forgive my mama and forgive myself and um, soften that part of me that was going to fix it and do it all right. Of course, then the irony, the paradox of then I became a mama and I had depression. And so that was, um, and then just that mystery of, just living through that, it's like the, I couldn't run from it. I had, there was a way I needed to face and really enter into it. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity um, to talk about it with my, my mom has always been very open about talking with it. And that was such a healing model for me because it gave me the courage um, to talk to my kids about how my depression has impacted them. And um, she's really taught me to have um, what might seem, seem to be really scary or difficult conversations. Um, and she has really helped me help that little girl who felt so frightened um, help really care for her. Yeah, you're really helping me to see depression in a new light actually this whole conversation is really kind of has opened up a new way of seeing things um because you were talking about the pain right and so I kind of had this construct or idea maybe it's just too theoretical about depression being this um lack of feeling or the numbing out of pain right so according to that you know the 
the compression of the sine wave where the affect flattens um, or like the inside out film where the character's control panel goes completely black or like thinking about the defenses in general. And I've been wondering, is depression, um, is it, is it just simply a numb out defense or is the numb out defense a part of a larger thing that is the state of depression? But you were, you kept talking about the pain, the pain, the pain. And I'm like, that's interesting because I kind of had this conception of depression as like, you know, this person is, they're numbed out. Maybe they're tuned out as well, but it's sort of the pressing down. They're they're in bed sleeping. They're kind of shuffling through the day. They actually don't have as much of an experience of the pain because they're kind of defended from this pain or they're like ignoring it, not feeling, sleeping, kind of turtling. Um, but I, I've heard in other people's stories this this pain that's that's going kind of weaving through or like one person said to me, you know, it's not that my affect was flatlined. It's that the top end is completely cut off and I felt everything and even more on the bottom end of it. And I'm like, this is so interesting. I'm, so there's, there's this pain construct, which is different than the numb out construct. And I had this question of like, okay, well, people take antidepressant medications to numb out. Why would you numb out an already numbed out state? But this whole idea of the pain thing is just, it's just a different way of understanding the, the depression. So you were feeling a lot. Oh my gosh. I was overwhelmed by pain. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was just, um, that's so interesting that what the other person you interviewed talking about. Yeah. It's like the top layer of stuff. Um, cause it's interesting. I can remember moments of feeling real joy. It's not that depression for me, obliterated emotion. There were certainly places of numbness, but generally, yes, for me, it was a flooding experience. It was being flooded and overwhelmed by pain that just felt like an ocean and felt like it had no end. Um, and the, oh yeah. And it's interesting because I've been on medication and I do take a medication now. And part of what medication did for me was an interesting, not just medication, you know, I live in part of the reason, one of the main reasons we moved from Montana to Texas, um, was because I needed more sunlight. And I do do so much better in Texas with sunshine. We have a lot of sunshine here. And because um, we're for much further south, you know, the winter days, we get, um, you get more sun and they're just longer. I notice a huge difference um, physiologically living here than I did in Montana. So I loved Montana. It was, oh, there's so much I loved about it, but I couldn't stay because the weather added a whole other component. Um, but yeah, the, um, what the depression, I mean, the, anti, the medication, what it did for me is it would, um, two things, it would take the pain down to a more tolerable level. And, um, and I could still very much feel, I know they talk about on some medications you can't feel, oh my gosh, no, I still, I've, it's never taken away feeling for me. Mm. It just made it less overwhelming. 
it also, um, in Sarah Payton's work, she talks about the default mode network, which is kind of the chatter in your brain, mm-hmm. and the things that your brain regularly kind of talks about. Um, and in her book, your, um, your book, she's read a couple of books, but one's called Your Resonant Self. And that book, she really gets into the neuroscience and she talks about how there's certain things they've done research on. For example, um, nicotine really shuts down that default network. So default mode network. So if it's really, really noisy, it can turn it off, you know? And I felt like that's what the medication would do is it would, um, some of the noisiness in my head, it would just kind of soften a little bit um, where it wasn't just so overwhelming. Um, And what's interesting to me that really makes sense, you know, I have um, autism runs in my family and um, I sometimes wondered if I was autistic um, because of the ways that, but I I took um, Gordon, um, Gordon's hypersensitivity course. And what I realized is I I don't have a brain that filters. (laughs) And so part of, I don't have that sensory gating system that filters out stimulants. So it's not that I, I don't think that I'm autistic, but I have that in common where my, my brain doesn't filter. So I feel everything around me and everything in me at such a heightened level. Um, and when I worked with a shaman, that was really interesting doing shamanic healing. I've worked with two. And one of the things that I was told was, um, Interesting, one of them said, your depression looks clinical on the outside. He said, there's actually a way you're absorbing everything around you in your body and your nervous system. Yeah. And so he had a way where a man named Maladoma Some, and if you look up his work in his village in Africa, he died last December. So sadly, he's not with us anymore. But um, I did a reading with him. And he talks about in his village, mental illness is seen as the birth of a, a birth of a healer. Mm. They have a totally different way of looking at it. And um, so there's a way he was kind of initiating me into that of like, yes, there is some of my own experience, but he said a lot of what you feel is not just yours. And that makes sense to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. All that flood that, you know, I can feel. And it may be, I don't know that this is true, it may be that my own experiences then make me more vulnerable than to, you know, what I'm, what I'm feeling around me. And um, so uh, that's a very interesting perspective to me and was really, really helpful because again, um, he helped me see it a little differently. And I wonder if some people are just more porous. And so I'm a writer. That's what I, that's kind of the thing that I do. And so the same thing that makes it really challenging for me, uh, the way I can be flooded by, um, by pain and things, you know, from a writing standpoint, that porousness and lack of a gating system, when I'm writing, things just come in, you know, mm-hmm. so there's, yeah, I'm open to, you know, when I'm writing images will come in or I'll remember this poem or remember something, you know, that all kind of weaves its way. So that's in a way that that's really fun that that gift brings but um the challenge with the emotion and the way i can get so flooded by things that are around me um you know that is certainly um some of the sorrow of of that Mm -hmm. um 
So one of the things that really helps me, um, and this, um, there's a beautiful book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Frances Weller about grief. Oh, I love that book. <laughs> I love it so much. I love that book. I He's think such a whole, beautiful writer. Isn't he? Oh, yeah. That book has been a very good friend for me. And when he talked about, I wasn't sure if it was in the book or in an interview that he did where he talked about. So he studied with Maladoma Somme. So Maladoma is the one who did the reading with me. Oh, okay, cool. When Francis talks about going over to the village with his friend and feeling the grief because of the way how interconnected they were and really feeling the poverty of Western culture's answer to that, you know, Mm. Um, it was Maladoma's village, I believe, that he was at. Anyway, just to put those threads together. Um, When he went to that village, he met a girl that was just radiant. And he was talking to her and asking her about her joy. And she said, said, I cry a lot. (laughs) I cry a lot. I cry every day. So that's one of my practices is I cry every day. And I need to cry every day because... I just can feel it when my body's starting to get filled up with the, and it's not just the sorrow of the world. It's not just the suffering. It's like the poignant beauty of life. Like when you, oh, when you are with your favorite dog and you're walking and you love your, you feel that love for your dog and you're noticing how your dog is getting older and you're realizing the mortality. And it's that feeling of like, life is so beautiful and it's all impermanent or, like when I watch something like a, like a sweet memory of a friend or it's just that tender tenderness of life that just can oh, just shatter you. And, it, and not because it's, cause it's so beautiful and so tender. I need to cry every day, both for the beauty of life and for the sorrow of life. And that I've come to see is kind of some of my emotional self care or hygiene or, it's the only way I know how to live in the world. I need to, and hopefully I can laugh every day too, but I really need to cry. It's like my cup just gets full and it needs to come out. Um, and that's another way I think I've used food over the years. Um, I think the bulimia was the only way I knew how to get out all the emotion that I had in me. Of course, at the time I thought it was about my body needing to be smaller. Right. Um, but even the body needing to be smaller is tied to the ways that I felt shame about the way I was eating to care for my feelings, you know, of there was a way that I, again, that, that competence addiction, there was a way I was feeling that shame that I wasn't caring for my pain quote better. Mm-hmm. And needing to be small because you're so intense and, and too much for the world. I need to just be smaller right. to fit into that attachment invitation that everybody says, I must. Right. Right. Yeah. There's so, so many yeah. layers too. So much of the stuff that you've said. It's like we read some of the same books. Yeah. I love that Wild Edge of Sorrow book. I just cried my way through it. And so beautiful. Oh, yeah. I felt like he gave me permission to really be a full human being. And what's interesting, I know Maladoma has said something. Um, that he talks about in his village that if they can't grieve, they're not trusted. Like to be an adult, an initiated an initiated adult in their village, they have to face their grief and their tears. Mm. And he said how the men in their village, if they can't grieve, they're not trusted. And they're a danger to the village because they're a walking powder keg. Yes. And I 
think of that a lot of, my goodness, if we're in a culture that can't grieve, and that's part of that alchemy, I think, of becoming an adult in the world. If we lose our tears, my goodness, then, you know, then um, there's a way, there's a way that we, um, you can see the harm, I guess, you can see the harm that can be done. And I think about Eve Ensler's work, and she talks about bullets being uncried tears. Bullets being what, sorry? Sorry, uncried tears. Oh, uncried tears. Yes, yes. I think about my kids. That's always the thing that breaks my heart the most and is in the back of my mind is, you know, when they lose their tears and when you can see your your loved ones, you know, when people start to get um, hardened by life because it's just been so painful and then we lose our tears and lose our feelings. And to me, that's... um, one of those ways that we all help care for each other is to help us all have our tears. You know, there's a, there's a line in a poem by um, Seamus Haney. um, And it's a retelling of a war poem from one of the Greek historians. I can't, but it's called the cure for Troy is the name of the poem. Mm -hmm. And the beginning of the poem is something like this. um, People hurt when it, people hurt one another. We hurt and then we get hard. Mm-hmm. And I think he actually says like people's, it might, be, it might be, I've got it in this little book next to me. I might look it up because I don't think I said it quite right. But the essence of it, that idea we get, we get hurt and then we get hard. Mm-hmm. And um, so part of depression um, for me has been finding those safe places where I can cry. Mm-hmm. Finding those places where as my friend says, all oh, your faces. Thank you for your faces. She saw the ugly cry and she saw beauty. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I love that idea of just the the grief and the bliss being two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And when you are in a state of grief and that tremendous suffering and heart pain from loss, you look at something in that, in nature and it's, it just looks more profoundly beautiful than it has ever looked, right? Because there's this deep vulnerability and sensitivity to life. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And there's almost a way the, the, like the way you feel can feel sh- truly just cracked open, like that crack in our hearts by beauty and wonder. Like when we see things that are, it's like when we see the beauty of human beings and, oh, or just the, the beauty of nature or when it really sinks in how precious life is in each moment and each person. For me, when I allow that in, it, um, it's so profound. It's like this line where is it grief or is it bliss? It's like this both, you know, the gratitude and the grief as Francis talks about. Um, I remember I took a course with um, this. Um, he's a business teacher of mine and he's a Sufi. So he's really interesting. And he, it was a course on money 
And one of the weeks we looked at where you face all your liabilities, like all the money you owe, all the, um, and then an, another week you face all your assets, all the money you have. And it's really looking at kind of the relationship you have to money. And it was so interesting because so many of the themes were so tied to what I was learning with Gordon and the Newfeld Institute. It was really interesting. But I thought that facing my liabilities was going to be the hardest part, right? Mm. Whether I bring up shame or bring up frustration or bring up overwhelm. But surprisingly for me, it was much more vulnerable to face my assets. And the teacher said that's really common with people who've gone through it. And it sounds counterintuitive, but for me to face, because he actually has you like, think of all, actually sit and face all the money you've made in your lifetime. Like even try to think about from your first babysitting job or your first lawn mowing job, right? Um, Or even to go through your house and really look at what you have. And I was so moved and bowled over when I really looked at, I don't have a very big home, but even in my home, I was like, oh my goodness, like I have a dozen pair of shoes. And I have four pair of jeans, <laughs> you know, like, like to really look at how to, to face how much I have been given and how much I have. It's kind of like what we're talking about facing the beauty. Oh my goodness. My whole being it's like, I could barely do the exercise because then you start to take in the gratitude to you're just open to the gratitude of, Oh my goodness. I have been given so much. <laughs> And part of facing the liabilities is it changes your perspective of depending of like, oh my gosh, these are places where people have helped me or I've received help. I've received a loan and I'm paying it back. Framing it rather than, oh, I owe this money, but oh my gosh, this is a place where I've received support. And um, so that comes to mind sometimes when I cry because yeah, crying about the beauty and wonder of life and crying about the heartache and sorrow of life. It's sometimes a line between that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're just crying about both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Everything we're attached to is something we can, can oh. lose. We'll right? also lose, yeah. Mm-hmm. And everything we've lost is a reflection of something we were deeply attached to and we would never, hopefully, want to change that or reverse that or undo that experience yeah everything we yeah that grief is an expression of love too yeah yeah that's really helpful right now because i'm grieving Mm. um, my health right now and Mm. yeah yeah there are things i really loved about the health i had a couple years ago that is different now Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a, how interesting that, or, you know, for me, it's really interesting that we were talking about depression and here we are kind of through grief. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I loved an inside out when sadness saved the day. Yes. Because it felt like this emotion that's been so outcast. It's like, oh no, this has a place. It's that tender heart in us that can weep with another. Yeah. You know? 
I remember um, being in the theater when it came out because I'd taken a group of youths to go see the film and I was like hanging on the edge of my seat because I was like no 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 because they were just pathologizing sadness well joy was pathologizing sadness this whole for the whole first three quarters of the film or whatever and I was just like oh no oh no oh no and I really was stressed like I <laughs> didn't like it but then when it when sadness came through and I realized the brilliance of all of it it was just this explosion of relief like yes okay they sent an entire generation the, the proper message <laughs> the beautiful the, yeah, the beautiful way that sadness is just able to come alongside. Mm -hmm. When she comes alongside Bing Bong and just, oh, Riley's doing away with you. That's sad. <laughs> I know, it's kind of like, um, there's that song from Toy Story where the toys are given away. Um, and it's a Sarah McLaughlin in the song, but but it's kind of, it's that, it's that, idea of like when we were um we were together and now that morning of that passage of time I can I can barely listen that I can just I can just I cry listening to that song and um, so it's interesting as I have a new book that I just started it's Susan Cain's new book on um longing and sorrow and I, oh, I can't remember what it's called but it's beautiful and um, I just started tucking into it and I listened to her TED talk. But in her TED talk, she, she gave a statistic about something like 70% of the time we listen to sad songs. Oh, I choose sad songs. I thought that was interesting. And I told my daughter, who's a musician, she said, well, of course, you know, it's like, of course that's true. Yeah. Um, and my other daughter, who's a real deep feeler. And she said, oh yeah, that's totally, I can totally, I totally do that. Because those songs help us care for our sadness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I can't see that. But yeah, it might be a book you would. You'd I really recognize have. her name. And yeah, I, I feel like I maybe have seen a TED Talk by her. But right. she wrote a book, Quiet, about introverts. Um, okay, the intro, it was like The Power of Introverts or something like that was the TED Talk. Yes. Okay. new book. Let me see if I can look up the title. Um, yeah, so I can give it to you. Yeah, her new book is called Bittersweet. Yeah, which is such a beautiful name. Yeah, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you had me at the, yeah, that's right. I know. I was like, <laughs> um, which is funny because that's one of the things I learned when I went and studied with Stephen Jenkinson. He really teaches that. And yeah, so I was talking with some fellow classmates when, because we were on a little email thread sharing the book. And I said, that might be the most orphan wisdom-ish title I've ever ah. seen in a book. Yeah. <laughs> about it. Uh, yeah, it was so, but yeah, it's, I've been really enjoying my, my dip into it. Because yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's again that, that you know the themes we've talked about just really embracing that whole of life and for me those defenses that I erected to try to protect myself mm. from not being hurt and from feeling safe and feeling okay and you know each time another piece of that armor starts to soften 
And I really love Bonnie Badenoch's work and Gordon's for this too, because one of the things they've really um, taught me and are continuing to teach me is to trust that process. That it's not something I have to force that 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 when there's the when the safety's there those defenses will start to soften because that same person in me that was driving my healing I think it thought well if I just read enough books <laughs> and learn the map then I can just apply myself um it's kind of like when uh remember in interviews with Brene Brown when she would talk about how she showed up with her therapist's office with an Excel spreadsheet and was like, I want all these things. It was kind of like that mindset, like, Oh, I'm just going to figure it out and then do it. You know, (laughs) yeah, yeah. that little alpha was just like, no, I'm just going to, you know, it's true though that you can lead yourself to water, but then you have to like let go and drink the water and let the water do what it is going to do to heal you. Yeah. Yeah. But you can, like, you know, plan a trip yeah. to the water. <laughs> we can walk to the water. We can, um, yeah, we can help nurture the conditions for sure. And for me, that was, for me, it was a subtle switch from kind of my willpower to willingness, like trying to drive it forward with my willpower, my healing to more of this soft kind of willingness. Mm-hmm. Like I'm willing to place my... You know, there's this Rilke quote where he talks about um, in the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. Mm. And I love that idea of, and for me, those hands are kind, like these hands that hold us. So for me, a lot of the images for myself is a, how do I fall back and allow those hands to hold me? How do I? Um, so there's a poem that I, I would love to share. This is my little poetry I love the poets because I feel like they so intuitively, they get it. (laughs) Yes. And um, this one is by, um, oh, it's in a different book. Well, I even feel like Rumi's guest house has really been kind of the overarching theme for our conversation today, right? Let it in. Oh, yeah. We've exiled those those bits, but then we, you know, in order to be whole, we must let them in. He said it so well, didn't he? Yeah. And I love that line where he's like, even what's he talking about? Even if they, they clear the room of all its furniture, like if they make this huge mess and like, they're really, really noisy and, you know, <laughs> to just trust them. Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. So this one is by Philip Booth and it's called first lesson. And I think this is what, um, this is one of my favorite poems. So he says, um, Lie back, daughter. Let your head be tipped back in the cup of my hand. Gently, and I will hold you. Spread your arms wide. Lie out on the stream and look high at the gulls. A dead man's float is face down. You will dive and swim soon enough where this tidewater ebbs to the sea. Daughter, believe me. When you tire on the long thrash to your island, lie up and survive. As you float now where I held you and let go, remember when fear cramps your heart what I told you. Lie gently and wide to the light your stars. Lie back and the sea will hold you. 
Oh. <laughs> wow. What's that one called? So it's called First Lesson by Philip Booth. Okay. I have two pages of notes by now. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a poem he wrote for his daughter and they were you know, teaching her swimming. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. I lie back. And Did you know a little bit more than swimming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what all my teachers, I think, are all my mentors and elders and heart companions and friends who hold me as I cry. I think that's what they're helping me do is lie back mm. and be held. And lie back and be held. And lie I back. Love that this dad is like the bridge to the world and to nature, right? Because it's like the dad cannot always be there in physical form. And to pass that love and attachment into, to pass the child into the arms of the sea in life. And that's just so beautiful. I know, isn't it? Oh, gives me goosebumps. I do. And the child would go into the ocean and that would be her dad holding her. Yeah. And you've inspired me. I just started writing. I've never considered myself a a poet, but um, like I'm not a trained poet, but I started writing a couple poems this past year like why not and I am going to write something about the ugly cry you really inspired me because oh, that's so great there is a way that we've pathologized um, human pain and our and the irony is that it's our our ugly cries quote unquote that bring the healing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. Yeah, you do have a very poetic way of speaking and describing things. It's not surprising that you're a writer, just the kind of yeah. um, adjectives and metaphors that you use that are just so beautiful. Yeah, it's home to me. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'll, if I wanted to close with something there is I remember when, um, you know, I can think back of my life, there are times where the depression has really peaked, times where it ebbs a little bit, times where it peaks. So even noticing the ebb and flow of that, there's certain times of this year. Um, January is always brutal, pretty much for me. And I had some real trauma when I was in middle school that happened that I think is connected to that. It's funny how the body knows. Mm-hmm. And um, so learning to bring a lot of compassion to January. Um, but this particular time, I remember it was, it was a very, very painful, um, painful time. And we had just moved and I was grieving the loss of our um, community and this home that we'd um, had this hundred year old craftsman that we'd remodeled and or my youngest son was born in actually. And, um, it's just a time of such sorrow. And I think that was one of the first times where I remember I would um, sit on my little swing under the moon and wrap myself in blankets because I was in Montana. <laughs> um, like cuddle up and I would look at the moon under the night sky and the stars. And I, I think that was one of the first times where I stopped asking why about my pain and really started feeling it. So I would often sit and rock and cry, put my hand on my heart. Um, so during that time, 
I, I could just feel the, and the voices of shame and criticism inside my head were really intense as well. And I remembered feeling this moment of um, the shame just come over. And it was connected again to this feeling like I'm not coping well with this. That shame of feeling I'm just overwhelmed by the grief. And this phrase just came to me. It just said, I will not make war against my own heart. I put my hand on my heart and one of my heart, one on my belly. I kind of a little round belly that I was feeling so much shame about and just felt my body. And that phrase has kind of carried with me a little bit because it feels like the antidote to that place inside of like, oh, you don't handle things well. You're not tough enough. You're, you're too fragile. Like the sense of you're too fragile. You're always crying on your bathroom floor. Um, like a real reframing of that. Of um, That's been a good friend. So some days I dream about writing the book version of that. Like writing yeah. I will not make war against my own heart. So maybe someday she'll be written. Maybe okay. she'll, she'll come to me. Um, and I can be her midwife. <laughs> oh, I can just talk to you forever. I, um, no way. Enjoy <laughs> this and just finding all the common books and teachers we love and yes. beautiful questions. And I feel like, you know how Brene Brown has that really beautiful synthesizing quality where she can take all the research and what people are saying and kind of create some threads of, oh, this is what I'm seeing. I feel like you have that gift as well. Hmm, thank you. And the way you kind of listen and, and kind of echo and um, really pull those threads together. So I feel really, um, it was a really healing experience for me to visit with you. And I also feel just um, really grateful for the ways that I think you're, this is going to just be so healing for people what you're doing. like you're weaving this beautiful tapestry around depression you know that blanket I said I wanted to put over my shoulders Mm -hmm. I feel like you're weaving that for us oh thank you that's a really beautiful way of saying that yeah no likewise this conversation has been just yeah timeless and outside of time and just this beautiful deep dive with a fellow deep end swimmer who yeah, yeah, not not too many people can go to the depth, right? And just to, yeah, all the beautiful ways that you described everything and helped me to, to really understand and kind of just kind of gently uh, turn over a few um, new rocks where it's like, oh, well, look at that. Yeah, that's a beautiful image. Yeah. I think I'm going to take my dogs for a walk this afternoon. I think I'm going to go have a good cry. you know just because we were talking about it and um brilliant yeah and please let me know so i will you know how i can support you and Mm, uh, finding people to to talk to or just sharing this podcast because i think it's such a needed conversation you know it's like i think if we really took in the wound of depression and how painful it's been particularly because of the isolation and stigma. You know, there's really, we're all in that circle, you know, and it's like just bringing, bringing that light and that compassion for all of us so that we all can suffer less. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hear your little puppy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm myself. Yeah, she's barking yeah. in the background there. I keep nudging at the door trying to get in. <laughs> <laughs> Also, squirrels come up right outside my window. My one little dog, she just sits there and whines and looks at the squirrels like, I really want to go get you. It's so funny. So she ran here insufferable. So I had to keep them out because all you'd hear was her whining. It's so cute. She's like, let's go get those squirrels. I want to go get those squirrels. Yes, yes. Well, um, it's been a perfect walk around um, this um subject of depression but so much more right and that's kind of what I've been observing is that you know when we try to talk about one thing everything else is wrapped up in it and um yeah we really covered some really interesting well originally you had talked about the terrain of the of the heart so I feel like that's what we've really unpacked together so such an honor to witness you sharing your story and to listen and and be a part of this conversation with you yeah thank you I always love connecting with fellow Newfeldians, if that's a word. <laughs> it is now, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, For sure. Yeah, I just, like I said, it was such an immediate yes when you were mm. talking about what you're doing. And so good luck. It sounds like you're writing a thesis. I don't know. Maybe I don't, I don't know where this is all going, but no, for now, it's just a, an exploration and wanting to know more. And who knows? Who knows where it'll go from here? Right, right. But yeah, this has been a very rich um, conversation and learning experience and heart opening inspiring experience oh, wow. my heart feels so mm-hmm. yeah it was so it was so fun for me to um, to just walk that terrain with you mm-hmm. it's just delightful like our own little like our like a little virtual tea here <laughs> yes. Around fire. Yeah. yes exactly well that feels like a really perfect place to wrap up so Um, I will end our recording here. And if you just want to hang tight for a moment and we can kind of close off together. Okay.